Hello, Peter. <laughs> I'm ready to start Trek. Good! We're done! <laughs> to the end of Trek! I'm finally ready. Okay, finally, we're going to start at the beginning. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're, what is this? This is Star Trek, but our five-year mission has officially come to an end. Five years after we started, that was, some would say serendipitous, some would say lazy, some would say forgetting to edit episodes for years. What a concept is what I call it. It's been a journey, which, which we did like 70% of them in a like a year and a half time span and then 30% in a three and a half year time span. But yeah, this, this was a mission to introduce Peter to the Star Trek movies. He had only ever seen Star Trek 2009, which back in 2009, he was positive on Into Darkness, which back in 2013, he was negative on. Never watched much of the show. We've been through dozens of episodes of Star Trek and The Next Generation. We've watched all of the movies. And we've been incredibly negative on the last two episodes of Star Trek 2009 and Star Trek uh, Into Darkness. Some would say everyone knew we were going to be negative about Into Darkness. It's a garbage movie, especially the back half. We talked about it all last week. I'd say five times in our entire We Love to Watch history, we've gotten to be that negative about anything. Yeah. Uh, it's like Mother's it's, Day. It's such a bad Doc Saints. Yeah. Like, what What have, what have we hated on the level we've hated Into Darkness? I don't know. I think there's been stuff like we've talked about when we've done Spooktober recaps where you're like, you know, lights out is garbage. But I not that we've actually covered on the show. Yeah. A full two hours hate fest. Yeah. We don't do it very much. We ba- And what's funny is we basically had a hate fest, a, like a, a three-fourths hate fest of 2009, which I think was a surprise to both of us. I liked it more than you overall. However, I was just str- – I hadn't seen it in a while. I was struck with how much the flaws of Into Darkness that were obvious in Into Darkness were present in 2009 – it, as I showed it to my nine-year-old who had never seen a Star Trek thing before, I recognized, and we talked about this a lot, how it was made for almost no one. It was just references, and it survived based on some exciting exciting moments, and uh, a really good cast was kind of, I think, where we, we came down on it. But the thing that's important is that, like, this isn't what we love to watch. We're not... We're, we're not reviewing Star Trek 2009 in a vacuum. This has been a journey to kind of get back to the beginning. Get back to, as Peter started out, loving the motion picture, which I, can always be an iffy p- people sometimes like the motion picture, sometimes don't like it. I knew we would like Wrath of Khan, but there's a lot to get into to understand Wrath of Khan, too. So this 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 podcast started out as a bang, and we knew we were going to go to the Abrams movies at some point. We were dreading into darkness. We thought I thought it'd be fun to revisit 2009. Peter was expecting to go in with more knowledge of the Star Trek universe than he did when he saw it and liked it. And you're right. We talked about it last week that actually having more knowledge and looking at looking at it through this prism of all of this track that we've been discussing and watching over the past five years, it really is kind of like it's a fun action adventure movie at best. It's terrible Star Trek. And then you have Into Darkness, which is like a terrible action adventure movie and like doubles down on all of the worst aspects of of 2009. 
So you end up with this movie for no one that ultimately doesn't even really matter in the continuity of these three movies, which we'll talk about a little bit. But my whole point from the beginning was, hey, we should do the Abrams or the, the Kelvin timeline because Beyond rules really, really hard. And that was that was my premise. But I got to tell you, Peter, after we watched the last two and my my memories of 2009 being really good went to like, yeah, this is good, but this is not good Star Trek. And I see the flaws more than everything. And we on what was ostensibly a movie that we both have given positive ratings to on Letterboxd, spent 75% of the episode talking about how much we hated a lot of it. I was a little worried getting to Beyond, because this is the big finale. We're going to do more Star Trek at some point. We have some ideas of more episodes and things we can do. We may have a little bonus movie next week that's not technically a part of Star Trek, but is referenced in the same breath many times. But this was it, and I was really worried. I was like, fuck. Is Beyond going to be a three, three and a half star movie? Did I remember it being better in my head? I only saw it once in 2016. And I was so happy 10 minutes in when I messaged you and went, okay, yep, this rules already. I am very happy. I think this is going to be good. And when you sent me um, a Star Trek ranking list, which we're going to do at the end here, and I noticed that it was four and a half stars. I was like, fuck yeah. Fine. I loved it. Peter loved it. But I actually wasn't that surprised you loved it. I, as I was watching this, it's just filled with great lines, moments of joy. The cast, like, fit, knowing who these characters are and putting them in different scenarios. And a good villain. And most importantly, maybe, as compared to the last two movies, a Star Trek story that has something to say about the philosophy of Star Trek, which... If you're going to do a movie set in this universe that has such a, like, has religion, literal religions and spirit, like, stuff devoted to it. People follow the philosophy of Star Trek. How can you not comment on the philosophy and the, the, the tenets and the ideas from literally thousands of hours of television? The first two movies basically said, hey, did a Family Guy version of that. Like, you know this thing? You like this thing? We're going to do this thing. And so seeing a movie that kind of gets at everything is exciting to watch, is fun to watch. Peter, your text to me was so perfect. Like, they finally figured this out. It's so good. And now they're not making another one? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They write at the ship. They have things going on a straight path. And now there's, who knows, post writer strike if they're going to want to keep this going, right? Like, there may be a real table-clearing post writer strike where they're like, Old projects that were kind of, you know, operating on the back burner. The heat has been turned off so long, we're not interested. Like, well, and, and Star, Trek, Star Trek 4 has been on the back burner forever. Quentin Tarantino almost wrote and directed it for a little bit there. Like, he actually signed a deal with Paramount to do it. He but I do wrote and directed episodes of Justified City Primeval. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do think, though, that if anything uh, has a chance of getting on the back burner, it's this, because as we talked about at the beginning of our 2009 episode, what seemed, what was kind of a needed injection of interest in Star Trek in 2009, looking through the prism of 2023, it's not needed because Star Trek is exploding again. It has four series on that overlapped, even though like Picard just ended and this next season of Discovery is the end. 
you know, it was kind of crazy when two, like we thought of Star Trek as exploding when there was two series on at the same time. We just had four. And they're still making more. And all four of those, I haven't watched all of them. But the ones I have or the ones I've read reviews of, people love or love later seasons or stuff like that. So we are like back in a golden age of Star Trek. It would be surprising. But none of that, none of what the golden age of Star Trek is now has anything to do with any of this stuff, right? It's literally a different timeline. It has no impact to anything. So I would be surprised if they ever go back to this well. People are getting older. The interest, even among Star Trek fans, doesn't seem to be there, even though, uh, again, the cast seems to be game or at least legally contracted to do it. And obviously, if they get the same talent that made this one, it'd be worth it. But maybe we'll talk more about that at the end. Peter... What was how, – how quickly into this movie were you like – what was the point of this movie where you kind of breathed a sigh of relief that we're going to get to do a love fest to wrap this thing up? I think that the fact – the first two movies in the series get off to – I think – okay. So the first movie, Star Trek 2009, I think gets off to such a bad note for me. Like the – all the rushed yeah. table setting. We talked about gears grinding into place. Like – all of that big moving of industry that it takes to get that movie going um, in the first movie is really off-putting. The second movie is trying to, in the first act, or prologue, let's say, is trying to, like, glitz and glamour you past the fact that this movie fundamentally is empty and, and, and vacuous. Yeah. And, um, you know, but the trick kind of works for a little bit. In this yeah, we, movie, we talked for, about that. Yeah. Like... Uh, the glitz and glamour of the third movie is, like, kind of gone. Like, yeah. they know that if you're still here or you're joining us, we don't need to introduce you to these characters. We don't need to, you know, shake up the entire universe again. We don't need to establish um, what Star Trek is about anymore. We're actually just going to tell you a story and we're going to tell you what you need to know along the way. And there's a sense of comfortable confidence in the first 15 minutes that I loved. I saw a reviewer after I finished the movie, I saw a reviewer that I I really do respect calling this movie, calling the characters or the interpretation of the characters in this movie, um, bored, Mm -hmm. um, or uh, detached. And, I could not agree more. The favorite thing about this movie is that in the first 15 minutes, it's Kirk trying to comprehend his struggle, and they're using really efficient shorthand to talk about how what he's been through and what he sees the fu- his vision of the future and why he's like, maybe I don't want to be a captain anymore. And um, it's and then in a all the little shorthand they use to like catch you up and remind you with who these characters are. There's yeah. no MCU styled, um, he's right behind me, isn't there? Style yeah. bullshit. It's actual jokes or yeah. an actual line reading that's intended to move the plot forward. It is or actual help us understand st- where they're at as characters or. Yeah, it's actual character building. It's really it good is, writing. It's saying we're putting this block here. Hope you like the look of that block. It's going to be important later. We're putting this block here. Hope you like the look of that. It's going to be important later. Like, the, the movie is asking you... It's not asking a lot of you, but it is saying, hey, we've been doing this for a little bit. These these people are comfortable in these roles. They've been doing it for seven plus years at this point. Like, let's, let's get off on a good start. And in 15 minutes, I knew at a bare minimum, 
this was worth giving a second set of eyes, a fresh yeah. set of eyes to, because I knew there were new screenwriters, I knew there was a new director involved, yeah, we'll and I didn't know that. if they were just going to mimic what other guys had done, because, you know, we have to keep it consistent with the previous movies. There's a lot of inconsistency to the way the previous movies are built compared to this one, and we'll, we'll talk. We'll talk a little bit. I love bit. that. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, and also, like, it's not that the, the movies are afraid to do references to the original show. Two of the best jokes are like direct winks at the with the audience in a way that is funny and not and not like like it has a point within the story that it's be that's being told. It's not like a hey, you remember this? Here that there it is again. That's the thing you like. Uh, and there's two like it's in like the first ten minutes, and they're so good and they're so funny. Which is after he gets into his first little opening mission, which we'll talk about a little more in <clears> the <throat> plot. He gets his shirt torn, which was a common joke on the original series. Like it was a joke repeated in Galaxy Quest, where it's like, why did you you figured out a way to get your shirt off? Like that his shirts always get messed up. Captain Kirk's shirt always gets messed up. And him uh, having his, his shirt torn, but instead of it like being a, like a happy joke because the mission was kind of a failure, he just like is like walking out of the transporter and goes, "I tore my shirt again." <laughs> and it's it's such a like it is a reference to the original. It also is is telling you something important. He is depressed. He is not this thing that he thought of like I'm going to be an explorer and go out into the world is lonely. He just has this crew and then he does a log reading where he kind of explains that he's wondering if, you know, he that this is the right job for him. And he goes, I don't know, a new week, a new planet. It's really starting to feel sort of, I don't know, episodic, which is, yeah. again, such a like it's telling you what you need to know about where his arc is going to be. And I think it's a like it is a unique arc. So much in, in the original series, Kirk didn't have an arc besides he was hot as fuck and he had sex with people and he got out of jams. Like he was a he was a 1960s TV show lead. And the movies, his arc is like, I'm growing old and I gave up the captain seat and I always should have just been a captain. And we talked when we did those movies whether uh, sometimes you notice that they go to that same well over and over. I think it works as a good through line through all the movies. But, like, it's that's his character beat. But that's all we've ever had from him for, like, who he is as a character. We've had we've had perfect star of a TV show sixty in the 60s, does no wrong, that. And then we have Now I'm Old, when the movies came out. So having an arc of, like, hey, I'm, I'm bored being this captain. Like, is this really what I want to do? Like, I'm not getting – the excitement that I had in my head of what a five-year mission means – which, you know, is just a log line at the beginning of a television show, the five-year mission. The idea that, like, what would a five-year mission where they never see Earth and they just go out and they go episode to episode and, like, that that's going to be affecting him throughout this movie. So they're able to do a reference that is funny and is clever in a way that doesn't exist just for the audience to go, I get that reference. Yeah. And, like, that's so important. And let's, let's talk about how we got there. So – after Star Trek Into Darkness, which everyone at first goes, that was great, and then immediately goes, that was the biggest piece of shit of all time. J.J. Um, Abrams had obviously – J.J. Abrams basically didn't want to do any of those movies. We talked about in 2009 that his friends really liked Star Trek and he could get it off the ground. 
Plus, at this point, he's going to go do Star Wars. He finally gets to do what he's always wanted so he can forget about Star Trek. Now, Robert Orkey, one of the terrible people who was one of the re- was writing these movies and is just a, just a hack, it's a terrible screenwriter, um, yeah. who was primarily responsible for the 9-11 stuff in the last movie. He was hired to write and direct um, in 2014. He started writing a script, and I'm going to read this quote, Peter, because it is infuriating. I talked about it last week, how annoying this quote is. He said, saying of the script they were writing, we really want to get back to the sense of exploration and wonder, the kind of optimistic sense of the future that Star Trek has always kind of had at its core. It's the Chicago Bulls in space in terms of these people who are awesome at their job. Why that's such an infuriating quote is – that works if you weren't partially responsible for the tone of the last two movies. <laughs> and that the whole point of the last two movies on paper was debt clearing to get rid of decades of canon so you can just take these fun characters and do a fun space adventure. And instead, not once, but twice, you saddled them with grim dark. 9-11 shit and let's blow up Vulcan and kill Kirk's dad and make him hate Starfleet and not like it you did that you saddled it with that sense of darkness so to be like yeah we just really gotta get back to having some fun out there it's like are you talking re- shit about are you talking shit about Nemesis without realizing that like the most recent Star Trek stuff is all you. <laughs> yeah, you are the reason there's a sense of we need to get back to the fun of Star Trek. Because it's real you hot it. dog guy and hot dog car drives all, through buildings. It is, it is. We're all trying to find the guy who did this, but let's, <laughs> you know. People don't even talk anymore. They're just looking on their phones. Um, but <laughs> thankfully, he was fired. And Simon Pegg and Doug June, who's his, uh, who also I think worked on Spaced with him. Uh, everyone kind of forgets that uh, they they get hired to to write the screenplay. Simon Pegg, lifelong Star Trek fan. Anyone who's ever seen Spaced, which I, I don't know if I finished it, but I watched some of it. I mean, that that is a show that is like references to drive a plot around characters. Like it is, he he's perfect for this job. He loves Star Trek. He knows these characters. He doesn't love them in like a surface level Robert Orkey, uh, Alex Kurtzman way that we talked about in the last couple episode. And um, and uh, at first, Peg apparently had written a draft and Paramount said that he didn't like it because he thought this is a quote. He, Paramount told him that the script that he had written um, might be a little bit too Star Trek-y, which – is the worst kind of studio note I could ever imagine. Um, <laughs> like I ordered a ham sandwich. Mm, too hammy. This is way too hammy. <laughs> I have gout. I can't be eating this. I want a ham sandwich that's not gonna affect my uric acid in my um but I want I want ham light. So they asked him to make more of a uh, western or a heist movie and populate it with Star Trek characters. So it might be more inclusive to an audience that doesn't want to go watch a Star Trek movie. Which was kind of the approach to Solo, which is a movie I don't hate. Solo is like, yeah. we're going to do a heist movie in space, and then every few minutes there's going to be a star, some Star Wars stuff. I mean, like, I do think this is a counterfactual. I get it. But, I mean, there's one group of 
one of the people i do think you're right all the pieces weren't together and the cast was together to make a fucking awesome movie it's it's an okay movie i agree it's fine i don't hate it either i have to believe that the lord miller version is closer to a great movie than the fucking ron howard movie um i mean i don't know if that's i don't know if that's right or not it's easy to say that uh but go do me a favor if you think Ron Howard's a generally good filmmaker, go back through his filmography and count how many of the movies you like, and you'll be surprised how little there are. Um, yeah. But uh, anyway, but uh, he, uh, but every every so often he gets a big hit, and then what's your favorite like Ron he, Howard movie? I have to look it up. I don't even know. Oh, obviously the Grinch who stole Christmas. Um, <laughs> there's got to be an obvious answer to this, right? I think Ron we. Howard. I think when we did the Grinch, we're like, has this man done a good movie? Actually, Apollo, obviously. Oh, Apollo thirteen is, I think, the. Yeah, I, it's it's just that he has a lot of very risable, like hillbilly he, allergies he, in there. He has a lot of like, oh, that's fine movies. Like, don't uh, people wait? Wait, don't be, should I see Parenthood? Don't people love Parenthood's Parenthood's good, but it's like three and a half star good. The Missing's I mean, a good movie. Cinderella okay. Man's a good movie. Frost Nixon's a good movie. Frost Nixon's okay. Uh, I really like Frost Nixon. And I really like Rush. I haven't seen Rush. I would say Paul Thirteen we're, is like his only masterpiece, and I have. We're at about fifteen percent of his filmography right now. I have <laughs> Maybe it pushes to twenty if we if we if I if I still like Ransom and I still like and I like Parenthood. We're at twenty percent. <laughs> I remember Ransom being like, "Oh, it's the I saw Conspiracy Theory, which came out the same year, and I loved Conspiracy Theory." And I saw Ransom, like this sucks. That was I was I should have just been excited to see a rated R movie. But anyway, I I, I loved Ransom as a kid because it was a rated R movie. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Did you see Conspiracy Theory? Mm-hmm. You should for same reason. Oh, yeah, yeah, I liked them both. Um, I also like Patrick Stewart playing a villain. That was cool. Oh, yeah. We should do Conspiracy Theory. I know we took a little Mel Gibson break after Mad Max, but we should figure out a way to do Conspiracy Theory. I, I secretly want a way to talk about Mel Gibson a lot. He's a fascinating man at this point where I'm like... And his post-cancellation movies are even weirder because he looks like a man who lived in a cave for 10 years. Should we do the movie? What is it called? The Beaver? Has anyone ever seen that movie? We should should do The Beaver. Blacklist favorite, The Beaver? (laughs) No. I did recently watch um, fucking the heist movie he did with Vince Vaughn. The S. Craig Zoller movie. Oh, uh, Riot and Cell Oh, no. uh, Dragged Dragged Across across Concrete. I I recently watched it. I liked it. Yeah. Uh, anyway. It's always funny when I say I haven't seen it, and I think you watched it on my boot. <laughs> I think that it happens with horror movies a lot, where you're like, oh, that's only $3. three dollars." I know. I, 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 those, like, 3 for $10 sales of, like, this will be cheaper for me when I rent it eventually. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Uh, so, yeah. So, uh, unsurprisingly, with Simon Pegg attached, the first person they tried to get to direct it was Edgar Wright. Uh, I think he was interested in head scheduling conflicts. Um... And then Are we what? sure this wouldn't have been an Ant-Man or a Solo situation where uh, the, the interesting, unique voice gets fucking hoisted out by the studio heads? I mean, maybe. Uh, Edgar Wright obviously has a very specific voice, but I also think that he could have done... Uh, like, this my, This feels like an Edgar Wright Star Trek movie, too. Like, And part of that is just because, obviously, you have the person who's scripted the first three of his movies that, you know, scripted those movies. So it does have that feel... I mean, I so think just it visually looks differently. Um, yeah. But 
Yeah, I think it's a, it's a few it's a few jokes away from feeling like an Edgar Wright movie, but yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, there may have been more like I don't know, shit on the screen. <laughs> like <laughs> I, uh, uh but yeah, I but instead they got Justin Lin, Justin Lin who had left recently left the uh, Fast and the Furious franchise after doing um I would say the second best there, I cannot rank those movies at all. Have you seen all of them? I haven't seen ten yet, but I have. I have. I have a a lot of affection for five through uh, eight, and then nine is terrible. I there. I, there's definitely more terrible movies in that franchise than there is good movies. But the four good movies, which I would say is five through eight, uh, I just are saw, fucking really good. I just saw. I think I just saw nine, and I hated it. The one with John Cena, uh, introducing John Cena as his, as as Don honestly, I have no <laughs> see how much does he write these fucking movies? So I remember, but I remember five, seven's the best one. The last Paul Walker one is so good, and five, yeah, I, that's really good. Uh, five is like the first one that they're like, let's do this heist movie, and The Rock comes aboard. That's Justin Lin. That's great. Um, really respond. So I guess the the log line is Justin Lin is one of the voices responsible for getting the franchise back on track. Yeah. After the um, interesting Tokyo Drift and the incredibly boring Fast Four. Oh, he did do. Oh, that's right. I, Tokyo Drift is okay. Fast and Furious, like the fourth movie, is so bad. It's 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 very it's very boring. It's like so too boring. fast too furious sucks, but at least it's like funny. Like yeah, there's like you're like it does genuinely feel like a meathead movie, like through and through in a committed kind of way. It's not a it's not a good movie. I like, forgot he came one back. is kind of a a dummy version of Point Break. Two is a yeah. It's a it's a smarter version of Torque, but still a dummy movie. I don't know. <laughs> One is, is actually the cut, one. The uh, one is actually the one I hate the most. <laughs> I forgot though he came back for Fast Nine because Fast Nine is so goddamn bad, um, and I haven't seen yeah. Fast X. But, but he, he got was... the he got the franchise he got the franchise back on track. Yeah, and he deserves credit for that. And also, um, he imbued a sense of technical mastery in the series. Like we need to try very hard to outdo all of our peers on a level where people will consider this style of filmmaking yeah. to be Fast and the Furious style. Like, he cre- he helped create the brand that we associate, where, like, it's not just that these people... It's almost like these people, when they sit behind a car seat, them plus the car becomes a superhero. The car yeah. can do things that your car couldn't do with... Any amount of effort. Any and amount I, of, of up, upgrades. Yeah, and I'm sure some of it is, like, the writer perspective, too. Like, he didn't write any of those movies. So, I'm sure, like, the one... I don't know who wrote five and six versus, like, three and four. But I'm sure that has to have something to do with it. Obviously, in this movie, is a great writer. And he's amazing at shooting action sequences. And while this movie doesn't rely heavily on action sequences, the the ones that exist are, are great. Like, yes. every single one of them... I honestly think the ending attack on the Starbase is like, I'm trying to think of another Star Trek movie. I mean, Star Trek movies are known for like action sequences, but I can't think of a better space battle in 
like obviously wrath like from an exciting like visceral action sequence level like obviously the jj abrams movie has those and they kind of are like oh you want to make a star trek movie this one with like you know mccoy and spock zooming around in one of the drones and cutting back to the star base as things are exploding and back to the farragut i think is the ship um uh like it's it's so it's so good and then of course interspersed with like simon Pegg's uh you know dialogue and stories it's it's we're gonna talk about it more but it's so goddamn good um, so yeah, yeah. He, he imbues a sense of gravity to the fight sequences here, yeah. which um, is, is 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 really great because I I think he's the first person to shoot a Star Trek shootout that is actually not only comprehensible but exciting. I think I yeah. think he's the first person to do that, and he does it a couple, two or three times in this movie. Like two or yeah. three times, you get to see a shootout that actually works. Oh, yeah, and the motorcycle stuff is all, like, great. Like It's, it's all really fun. It's all really fun. Yeah, so they got the right people into this, and then, as we said, nothing happened afterwards. <laughs> um, they, uh, they, Quentin Tarantino was going to do Star Trek Four, Like you said, it was get, it felt like it was getting close to off the ground, and now we're in strike land. Who knows if at, on the, at the end of this, which seems like, at this point, it could be five years. Um... It feels uh, like it feels like weirdly enough, like Tarantino. This would be a perfect thing for him to be able to. He's talked about you know wanting to write more books. He wrote that once upon a time in Hollywood. He talked about wanting to direct more TV and kind of get his 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 feet wet in, in different areas and just kind of see what he can do before he does his his quote unquote last movie, which I, I think is a lie. I think he's going to direct more movies. Do you remember when the uh, Hateful Eight script leaked online? He said, "Great, fuck you. I'm not making it now." Yeah, like. <laughs> I, the idea that he would have an idea that he wants to make into a movie, but he would not do it because uh, he's told the Hollywood press that he doesn't like people took that shit so seriously just because be, he's been like t- saying it as a theme for years. And his yeah. theme was when I'm done with stories, I will stop telling stories. And like yeah. he just came up with an arbitrary number. He's like, after this, I'm done. And like, he's going to come. He's going to fuck around. He's going to write some books. He's going to write a book that pisses people off. And then he's going to be like, I can't leave my legacy like this. Like something yeah. is going to happen where he's going to be like, I got to do one more movie. And yeah. and it's going to happen two or three more times after his last movie. Yeah, I also like. But sorry, this was sorry. I didn't actually finish my point about Star Trek. Oh, sorry. Um, I, no, no, no. I, I, uh, I, I was well. I just really quick. I got really too annoyed about the the the. Tra- I got too annoyed about the Quentin Tarantino thing. It's, all, it's also it weird though. Facebook. He he is sixty. Like, I mean, it when like sure. Spielberg, like he he. It's I still think of him as a young guy in Hollywood, but he's like he's closer to Martin Scorsese's age than like actual young exciting people in. Yeah, Hollywood. that is that is true. But he. I do think that this would have been a project that I would be excited to see oh, his yeah. take on because the cast is already set for you. Yep. Um, it's a level of budget that he doesn't get to play with that much. Um, Once Upon a Talio had a had a big budget, but not a uh, you know Fast and the Furious director level budget. And like, I would like to see him work within someone else's confines a little bit more. Like that would be kind of an interesting creative challenge for him and. To, to see what he values in Star Trek over what studio producers value in Star Trek would be sensational. I, I'd love to see that. Even if the movie sucked, it would be one of the all-time, like, 
great things to talk about. One of the great discourse things to talk about is like, remember the time that Quentin Tarantino made that Star, Trek. Star Trek movie that was yeah. like 40% really Star Trek and 60% really a Quentin Tarantino movie? Yeah. Like, there's no outcome that's not, you know, better than goddamn... Uh, Robert Orky making anything on the planet. Well, and where they ended up, I'm you know whether Star Trek Four ends up happening or not. Like, so do you know who they? So after all of the Tarantino stuff, they hired one of the writers from Discovery, which Discovery is a good show. I don't know a specific writer's contribution to it, but I think when you if you go from Simon Pegg, who's written some of the best movies of the last 20 years, to a writer on a TV show that has some really good episodes and some really okay episodes, and who knows their contribution to it. And then I think it's, I think it's pronounced not uh, with a long A, but Matt, Matt Shakeman? Shakeman? Mm-hmm. Um, Something like that. Impossible to know. <laughs> um, he was hired as the director... And he has – he's now doing the Fantastic Four movie, but he basically is a TV guy. He did do It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. A lot of it's uh, – he did like 43 episodes of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, wow. but is more recently known for doing WandaVision. Um, and has never really directed a movie except his indie feature called Cut Bank in 2014. And then he left – after they announced the release date as June of 2023 – he left citing scheduling issues last August. So, like, it doesn't seem like they have a... Like, look, I like WandaVision actually quite a lot, and I like Discovery. I think going from Justin Lin and Simon Pegg to those two uh, is likely to be a step down. So, uh, Isn't scheduling, scheduling reasons... Isn't that, like, code for... I don't think this is actually going to happen, so I'm not throwing six months of my life away for nothing. Yeah, well, instead he's doing Fantastic Four, so I guess if Fantastic will Four happen, rules, probably. yeah, if that the, if that rules, we'll be like, oh shit, I take back what I said. Here's my guess: it's not going to rule because I think the fan, the problem with the Fantastic Four is not that no one can make a good movie. I think they're inherently uninteresting characters in 2023. Yeah. So, yeah, that's true. Four. Yeah, we don't we don't know if there's gonna be a Star Trek four. I, I I talked a little bit about how you know I, a Tarantino one would be interesting. Honestly, there are very few filmmakers that I there's very few filmmakers that I trust in Hollywood to be able to overcome studio system bloat and make movies that look like movies. Mm-hmm. Um, my concern here is that it has been seven years since this movie. Seven. Yeah, I know. Do you, time is do you going know, so fast. Did you know that? Seven yeah, years? Yeah, I, I know it's been seven years. The 2016 so. election was seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Do you remember well, that? I I do. Here's the funny thing about having kids. So kid time moves incredibly fast. You'll be looking at a picture of your kid and be like, wasn't that just yesterday? Um, and, and it'll be like 2016. You're like, man. It's just, it feels like just yesterday I was playing with my oldest when she was two and now she's nine. And then if you're like – and the reason I'm noting this is like time hop because I, I have like screenshotted tweets and other things as I go through like old pictures of my kids. And then the rest of the world feels like um, – does not feel like yesterday. It's like I had a two-year-old when that was going on in my life. Like what? 
that 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 feels like thirty years ago. And yeah. so yeah, it's 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 a weird thing that happens. But yeah, movie dates are one of those things where you're like, oh, I assume that came out a couple years ago. Um, and it was. I think yeah, I'm so bad at movie that. dates because I think I'm mad at bad at movie dates to protect my psyche. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so seven years has passed. Um, the time between I Star th- Trek, the motion picture, and the Voyage Home was seven years. So they released four Star Trek movies in the time. That's also seven years is how long the Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, was on. Like those were seven year TV shows. Like the amount maybe, of time that has elapsed is incredible. Maybe we maybe we let it go. Um, maybe we we let this this franchise be a dead end. The problem is, I wonder what this movie's legacy is. So I don't think a it has lot of the review. So I think a lot of the movies. The, the movies in the, the Star Trek series, I think, like, 09 is considered well, Into yeah. Darkness is considered very poorly, and then, as you say, Star Trek Beyond has either a middling rep or a non-existent rep. I don't think time has been particularly kind or unkind to it, and I don't it's know been what forgotten. It, I don't know what it would take except for another series, uh, another film series, um, making it to the the big screen for people to reassess these movies. Yeah, I don't, I, I, don't I don't totally know what it would take for this movie to uh, to get it, the rep that it deserves. I rank it, and I'll talk about this later. I rank it very high against all the Star Trek movies, um, and I think it's a shame though mm-hmm. that like so many people, myself included, either. Didn't give this movie a fair chance. Because I second guess myself. I was like, is yeah. this even good? Because these movies sucked. No. Or they just never saw it in the first place because they were like, what What do I need this yeah. for? Similar You're judged by your last movie. 09. So it yeah. lost a lot of the audience when people didn't like Into Darkness. Yeah, so right. not liking Into Darkness. It kind of craters because like, it's like why Batman versus Superman had a huge opening and then no one saw Justice League because everyone, most people hated Batman versus Superman. That was the problem. This movie did okay in theaters. Didn't do great. And no. so, like, because a lot of people skipped out. And so, yeah, I do feel like – and on top of that, it came out in 2016. 2016 is when Discovery went on the air. Everyone was excited about a new Star Trek show. Discovery was well-received and then, you know, kind of, you know, produced more seasons and they did more Star Trek because it was getting such good numbers on CBS All Access, now Paramount+. Plus. And so it also, like, came at a time where people weren't excited about another Star Trek movie after Into Darkness. People were excited about the first Trek TV show in 11 years. And so – you know, the again, the thing that just seven years before this in 2009 was like a lifeline to save a franchise that after so long had finally burnt out and no one was interested anymore now became an also ran to the actual Star Trek thing that people were excited about, which was a new Star Trek show. So it's, it's, it's interesting from that perspective as well. Yeah, yeah. And uh I think it's probably worth diving into what the hell this is and we can talk about yeah, I have why, one, why we rank this so high. Like yeah. why we consider this to be such a a writing of the ship, um, whereas uh, 09 kind of feels like an artifact of a different era and Into Darkness feels like um, a movie made by hateful people <laughs> that hated people. <laughs> And, and it's, it's a cursed, they turned in the they turned film. in the script at the last moment. I don't know. Khan 
It was a late assignment. <laughs> One thing I do want to just kind of to get back to the theme we said of the last couple of episodes. Our point in when we covered these is that ultimately with where Star Trek is today, that these movies don't matter. And one thing as we go into this from the last two movies, it's kind of incredible how little, even within the context of just three, these three movies, Into Darkness doesn't fundamentally matter. So at the end of that episode, or the end of that movie, which has kind of the same ending as the last movie. The end of Star Trek 2009, Kirk is the captain. He has his crews in place. He's going on space adventures. Into Darkness starts with, yeah, he's going on space adventures, but not like the space adventure, not like the five-year mission. Takes his captaincy away, keeps him on Earth the whole time, does this conspiracy theory. Also introduces a new member of their crew, Carol Marcus, who's going to go on with them. But fundamentally, since no one actually dies and there's no stakes, at the end of that movie, they go into space. This movie... If you are listening to all this and are like, I don't want to watch Into Darkness. Maybe you've never watched it. Maybe you're going to go through all three. I, You don't have to watch Into Darkness. There's nothing from Into Darkness that carries over into this. If you watch Star Trek 2009 and assume that when he's the captain, he's going on a space mission, um, you are going to be completely fine because, um, because in the next moment he is... Uh, if, if, uh, sorry, I just lost Peter. Um, he is going to be uh, – you're going to be completely fine because you can go from 2009 to this. Carol Marcus isn't on the crew anymore. Alice Eve isn't on the crew. It legitimately doesn't matter. There's no stakes, no mentions, no long-term consequences. You are free at least to get a little bit of setup to go from 2009 to uh, beyond and you will be fine because nothing in Into Darkness fundamentally matters. Peter, let's get into it. Let's get into the plot and all the great moments of this love fest that is Star Trek Beyond. Are you ready to continue, Trek? Yeah, we're beyond. Um, I'm the worst co-host tonight. I start late. Technical issues? And I've been jacking off this whole time. With no hands. I've seen both of your hands pretty consistently, so that is impressive. Uh, I'm using a drawer. We got one of those, like, I've seen those advertised on TikToks so that are like, get this banana cleaner, because I don't think they're allowed to. <laughs> My Shows like a so banana in a thing getting heavily jerked. Clean your bananas with this tool. <laughs> what the fuck? Oh, God, fuck? what are you doing that What banana? the fuck is this? That banana is way too soapy. Are you going to eat that? <laughs> Uh, anyway, yeah. You know you take the peel off, right? How are you eating bananas? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I definitely don't think you should take the peel off and then clean your soapy banana with this. I got to be very clear. Seemingly aggressive scrubber that goes up and down the whole banana. Listen, I'm aware I should be cleaning my produce more, but this seems excessive. It's like a COVID thing. Like, wash your banana for 10 minutes with this. <laughs> Fits snugly in and washes your banana. Um I'm yeah. really more worried about tomatoes. Can we wash tomatoes with this thing? Uh, you Do can not wash tomatoes with <laughs> uh, a little bit of humble brag. You need you need one that can clean tomato size. <laughs> um, Just Roma. Yeah. The uh, so beyond. We're not we're we're gonna go through at kind of a high level here and just talk about some moments. But yeah, so it kind of does what the last Star Trek movie 
tried to do, which let's open in an adventure in progress because they're on space missions. Think about the last one is that not only was it just an Indiana Jones ripoff stated by the filmmakers, they want to do like an exciting Raiders of the Ark, the, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark thing, it turns into a very heavy thing at the end when Spock tries to sacrifice himself to protect the Prime Directive, which as you noted, they didn't even explain what the Prime Directive was in that movie. Um, or the previous one. Yeah. So this one, though, has a fun adventure with like Kirk trying to broker a peace treaty and the aliens being like little goofs, literally little goofs. They seem like they're huge, imposing, like almost like Sarlacc monsters. And he gives them a weapon or he gives them a um, peace offering from this other this other species. And he said it used to be a weapon and it's showing now I'm giving it to my ad- former adversaries as a token of peace. And these guys are like, why are they giving us a weapon? What what kind of terrible thing is that? Was it active? Is it going to kill us all? They're like, they're little goofy guys. They're, they are and they have fun. a cultural misunderstanding yeah. on like why you would offer this type of olive branch, which yes. is a very, it's a funny way to do a shorthand comedy version of what Star Trek is about, which is like, your best intentions don't matter if the other culture doesn't understand that you're being a yeah. weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, it's a good cold open. It's a great cold open. They, they jump down. It's communicating to, an idea in a funny way. They jump down to attack only for the, you to see they're one feet tall. Not, not, they're, they're Sarlacc-like, but they're tiny. And they all start beating up Kirk. He gets beamed out. And then a few of them get beamed with him because they're grabbing his clothes and, as I said, tearing his shirt. I'll just say that the runner that these aliens that got beamed out as they, like, punch it to warp, stay on the ship forever is a very funny joke. There's a joke at the end where one of the aliens has put on a shirt and Kirk walks by and goes, hey, Kevin, see, you're still not wearing pants. Um, <laughs> it's it's just funny. They beam some aboard and then they run through the ship and they've just they stayed for whatever reason. <laughs> Who knows? Might be kidnapping. Maybe it's not as funny. But anyways, that's when Kirk is. I like to think. I like to think that that is the diplomacy thing paying off. Where they, he's now been on the ship long enough. He's been like these people. Are oh, I, I get it now. So Kirk then is like. I mean, it's kind of a, a mission that's that from his mind, you know, uh, space adventure is boring to begin with, right? Like he's just doing this peace offering, which was a common criticism of Star Trek. You know, both Next Generation. Star Trek and especially stuff like Voyager, they're out in the unknown and they do these little like episodic mission of the weeks that are like, we bring this we bring this to this other species to help broker a piece. Like it's not exploring in the sense of like what it theoretically is supposed to be. And so it's like how Columbus discovered America, but there were already a lot, a lot of people here. Yeah. So but also just like it's they're not like fighting space monsters every week. Sometimes they're just brokering peace between these two things. And then they go back and they fly to another planet. They see what's going on there, whether they can talk to them if they have advanced enough technology uh, and then move on. So he has a log. And he's like, we're two years into this. And this was not what I expected. Like talking about the crew. Like, they hook up, they are all on their own, we, you know, they, they're they good crew, but, like, is this what we're doing? Just going planet to planet and saying what's going on down here and see if there's anything we can help with and then sending the reports back to Starfleet? He's like, I, you know, he's, I expected to be an adventurer and explorer. Instead, I'm like, a, you know, a diplomat and a, um, a, a, a planet, uh, a map maker, a cartographer in some ways. And so... He, they're going to the Starbase to re, to uh, relax. The Starbase is has an amazing design. It's like a enclosed in a trans 
parent aluminum probably as a reference to Star Trek Four. They don't say that, but it's kind of a star base that like ex- makes its own gravity, but has like parks, and it's less of like it's a star base that just looks like corridors of a ship. And uh, Kirk goes there. It's, it's it's kind of uh, referencing two things. One is like the 1960s vision of the, the future was literally like domed cities in the sky, yeah, yeah. or domed cities on the moon where like people could have like you know. <laughs> you could have your trees and your neighborhood lined streets. Like that was the vision of the future in the cities, uh, the future of cities in, in the sixties. It's also, it's not a reference to this, but it very much reminds me of, um, the, uh, uh, what was the movie? Valerian and the city of a thousand oh, yeah. planets. This is like a Federation melting pot, uh, world. And it's a, it's a world that was created exclusively to be like, a federation melting pot like it's it's supposed to be where all these races kind of exist in harmony in space under federation protection yeah uh yeah it, it looks amazing we're going to come back to this later but a few things happen one on this spaceship that are worth or this uh, space station that are worth calling out first uh, spock runs into some vulcans who have some important news for him uh that important news won't get revealed till later in the movie but that sp- future spock has died um, and so Spock's conflict throughout this movie is, should I quit Starfleet and uh, and go resume Spock's work with New Vulcan? Uh, through that, also, Hura and him broke up. They don't talk about the reason for a while, but uh, she tries to give back a necklace he gave. That'll be important. A later he goes, no, that was my mom's necklace in Vulcan. It's, you know, the gifts that are given exist within that time. We don't expect things back. And it's insulting to me that you're asking. He says it nicer than that. Uh, I love Zachary Quinto's Spock portrayal in this movie as this kind of like less of a, I should be the captain and more of like, where's my place in the universe type thing. It's re- it's really, really, it's good. Um, Kirk is like, I talks to the vice admiral about whether he wants to continue to be the captain. And she's like, well, you're doing a good job. You could probably be a vice admiral or or talk to a commodore. Sorry. Uh, you'd probably be a vice admiral and get a desk job if, you know, you want to work in Starfleet. But the exploring thing's not scratching the itches that you expected. And then one other thing that's less important in this, but I do want to just mention it quickly. Another important thing that happens is since everyone's going on shore leave, uh, Sulu, uh, his husband's there with their kid, uh, which was a homage in a reference to one that there hasn't really been as much like a lot of fran- long-term franchises there's been a hesitancy to make you know major characters gay there's million jokes about like hey that you know like star wars featuring a featuring their first gay character and it's like the background of a celebration to women kiss or something like that right like so yeah, yeah. this was the, in- the the intent of this was simon Pegg to say hey george takai famously who played Sulu was a gay man who was in the closet for much of his life. And so as an homage to that and to actually make a major character, not just be a straight person, straight cis person will make Sulu gay. It is worth noting George Takai uh, was very not too happy about that. His take was that he was extremely supportive of, um, Putting more, he said he he said in one hand I applaud it because I want to see more characters of different sexualities and you know uh, different gender identities and stuff like that in movies and especially in big franchises. So in a vacuum, I applaud it. However, he's like you know Sulu, the character I played was a straight man. He got married. He had kids. 
Um, you are, he specifically said that you're kind of disrupting the vision that George Ronberry or uh, Gene Ronberry uh, uh, had. <laughs> this is kind of dumb. This is kind of dumb. Well, the reason that he offered is that, and like, I, I thought he was going to say because they didn't cast a gay a gay performer as no, it's because that, which would be which would be my criticism is if you're going to make Sulu gay in the movies, well, you're not going to recast him probably yes, in exactly. The third and movie. John and it's also yeah. it's John Cho. Like yeah. you got a very talented, also bankable uh, actor of Asian descent, yeah. not Japanese descent, but yeah, uh, of Asian descent. Um, I'm not sure if I'm not, I haven't I, I don't actually recall if. Sulu being Japanese is as important as Sulu being Asian American. I don't really Asian feder- Federation. Um, yeah, if that, if, that, if that really matters. But the, the point is, like, you get cat. If you're gonna, if you're gonna, if you're gonna do that, it's ideal. The best version yeah. is to cast a know what you're doing from the beginning and cast a, a gay performer. Yeah, I. So his reasoning, I have a lot of problems with Gene Roddenberry. We've talked about that. He he definitely later in his life became a kind of a race he was always a misogynist but he became like he he, like some people in their old age who feel like they've been burnt by their attempts to help other people that don't aren't like them he developed a lot of resentments uh to say black people that he had previously really championed and fought for equality and stuff like that not worth getting into here but george takai's specific reason is that gene uh gene ronberry found out he was gay in the 60s and took Epic uh, to, went to Epic Lakes to protect that secret at a time that it could have got him fired from the show or other things like that. And so his point was that Gene Roddenberry created a straight character and you have you and this person who I have a ton of respect for because he kept my secret and kept me safe and being able to be an actor. And you've, you've besmirched that while I like the idea of what you're doing. You shouldn't have done it with my character who was, who was written to be a straight man, of course, at a time when you literally couldn't have anything else. That's why he had to protect you. So I'm noting it again. He is, he's obviously the person that plays the character. I would, he's too, he's very close. He's too, he's too close to it. It's just worth noting that for as nice it is for the inclusion, the person who they did it for is like, I don't like this at all. So yeah, so, yeah. I mean, but, it's, but, it's worth but here's the thing. Like, all right, so uh, my personal beliefs, perhaps, um, <clears throat> perhaps you know, uh, similar, uh, you know, share some commonality with like a Keynesian belief yeah. is that all of us exist on a spectrum of, yeah. you know, heterosexuality to homosexuality. Maybe there's a third point in the middle or a third uh, axis that we can go to, um, and uh, or second axes we can go to. I, I I don't I don't know something something resembling that where all of us have tendencies and there's times in our life where we could exhibit specific behavior depending on how we develop. Like I have this very yeah. free flowing idea uh, that like life is beautiful and you may have dated women your entire life and then you're sixty years old and you're like. I'm in love with this man. Like, yeah. I I have a very open-ended, if you say you're gay, you're gay. If like, you know, y- yeah. your identity is your own tone. Yeah. Is there no universe, no possible multiversal way that Sulu could be gay? Well, I think I think what you have to... <laughs> like, never. If you, Sulu loves pussy in every multiverse. <laughs> I mean, what you have to accept here is somehow Kirk's 
dad dying when he was a baby made Sulu gay. <laughs> <laughs> It's a, it's a, Listen, it's a butterfly effect. No one can say where the branches are going to come. We t- we talked about last time Carol Marcus, who hated Starfleet, somehow Kirk's dad dying made her join Starfleet. Who yeah. knows? Um, in this one, something on that ripple in time hit Sulu and was like, no, oh, I like men. Or, <laughs> or it a previously closeted Sulu. Who lived the life of a straight man, but was secretly yeah. gay? Didn't feel like, hey, if this guy's dad could die, maybe I can be my free self. I, <laughs> hard to explain, uh, but uh, I I think it's generally good, even if it is just the background. <laughs> I just imagine George Decay standing up in the theater, uh, watching this guy likes pussy. <laughs> adult men kissing, <laughs> greeting Boom. each other. You're like, boom! 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 <laughs> um, yeah. It's, uh... It's a little... I... It, and like I'm sorry. I should be less dismissive of the opinion. It's not just. It's not. He's very close yeah. to this. I just. I think it's very funny that in all of his mindset, he could never even consider that an iteration of the character is gay. Yeah. It. Is, I mean. It. I remember the criticism that was a little bit newsworthy at the time, and everyone just kind of went, "Okay, well." He can believe. He can have that belief. He's close Which to it. Which is precisely yeah. the thing. Yeah. I would never give him shit personally for this. Yeah. But it's, it is an interesting – it is also it, – It's just – Interesting perspective yeah. of, of a man whose career could have been destroyed in its infancy by hatred. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like a man who's who operated in a precarious position in Hollywood's history for no fucking good yeah. reason. And again, the statement was overall like, this is a good thing. I just don't like that it's yeah. happening to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, basically. All right. So, anyways, I will stop giving him shit. But that is very funny to me. Yeah. (laughs) It's not even your character anymore, man. Yeah. So they get a distress call and they bring in this like alien who's like, my ship was destroyed and I believe all of my crew were was taken, uh, taken hostage. What is her name? Yes. So okay. So it's not it's not Crabhead woman who has crabs on her head. Yeah. She. she, She. Her. That's Ensign Sill. There we go. She's fine. She's in Federation. She's like my. There's just all these beautiful. There's all these beautiful young women in the cast who they put mountains of space makeup on. So (laughs) Ensign Sill specifically, the back of her head is like the uh, the alien. um, The head. The head crabs in half life. No, that like it's like the alien crab that impregnates people. Like it opens with the same. It probably is like the same prop. That opens yeah, up it, it is very xenomorph crab slash. What do they uh, call the sack? Yeah, the what do they call the, um, the 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 impregnator guys for aliens? Yeah, the crabheads. <laughs> Anyways, so uh, face fuckers. She, yeah, she um she's like, there's a distress call, and so Kirk's like, we'll I'll go to the distress call, um, and then we'll talk about this about whether I should resign when we come back. There's a great Can little we pause scene here really quickly. Yeah. Um, we pause here really quickly. I just want to talk. Uh, sorry, you're after you talk about that scene. I'll edit this out. Um, uh, so I was going to. So they so they go out to go look for. They go out to look for the ship at these coordinates almost immediately. I was going to move on to like the next. Scene. So did you have something on that? Yeah, I did. Okay. Um. Uh. So I want to talk a little bit about the character stuff while we're here. Okay. Um. Before we get on the the major mission, because I think this helps. Um. So yeah, Kirk obviously like 
the motivating factor for the movie has been kind of set, but there's some background, some mystery there on, on Spock's motivation, and there's some more more gaps to be filled in later. But they both say they'll talk to each other after the mission. They're like, yes, if Kirk does exactly. this. We get along well, don't we? Because Kirk also recommended Spock for the captain job if yes. he if he ends up taking the vice admiral. Exactly. He speaks with a com- Commodore Paris, um, who's uh, performed by Ashore uh, Ag- Agadashlu. Mm-hmm. I believe that's how you pronounce yep. her name. She's in The Expanse. She's a major role in The Expanse, yeah. um, which is a great, great sci-fi show that uh, if you're if you're a Trek fan, you should definitely check out. Um, <clears throat> but the, uh, she sort of, Commodore Paris sort of acts as a... Beginning and end, like an end cap yeah. on Kirk's journey in the movie. Um, they needed someone with gravitas and also a really cool voice. Yeah. Um, uh, to I believe she uh, was added later, like after the cut said that they needed more explicit stuff, which makes it does make sense a little bit. It's I mean yeah. it, it's, it's a good. great addition. Yeah. Um, they finally don't have a middle aged male character actor playing one of these leaders. It's a woman of color with a very unique, very dramatic. Uh, commanding kind of uh, accent. Yeah. Some, in the expanse, it's used to great effect. Her sexuality doesn't come up, but I have to believe George Takai would have been fine if she was gay. <laughs> <laughs> George Takai, how do you feel about Commodore Paris being pansexual? Um, yeah. <laughs> do you think that on the on the wiki they've they've like codified that? They're do like, you think they did like an asterisk for everyone that George Takai would have been fine if they were gay in the movie? <laughs> As of as of the the date is always moving as, one day forward. <laughs> as of August thirty first, twenty twenty three, George Sakai has not given. I would have been fine if Joe T- Talslam, who plays Manus, I'm fine if that guy was gay. <laughs> uh, God, um. So, uh, but but she Commodore Paris perform sort of this framing of the movie. And I think that Kirk's journey here is really interesting. And like one of the major criticisms that I saw, and at least in like some of the nerd circles was that, um, having a Kirk who's bored, uh, quote unquote is, uh, is a bad way to start these movies. I think that it's, it's not that he's, it's not that the characters are complacent. Uh, any of the characters are complacent. It's that they're kind of believably comfortable in this position and that I think that the movie does not do a Last Jedi style, you know, we're, 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 um, uh, uh, it's not, the movie does not do a Last Jedi style, uh, um, what do you call it? Like a, a um, reconciliation or a yeah. therapy session for the, the, the previous movies. But it does do some things that I think kind of reckon with the most annoying parts of the first two movies. Yeah. And I think that they came up with a very believable version of Kirk. Yeah. After the smug, brash, I don't give a shit about the rules version from the previous one, they came up with one who has sort of settled into the job, has also sort of become, because his first few missions were so chaotic, so dramatic, so many deaths, so, so much of himself was challenged by those missions that like we're finally at this thing where he's kind of like, doing the job he was supposed to do the whole time and the job he wanted the whole time. And then he's realizing, like, did I actually want this job? Like, his smugness was not met with a brick wall in this one. His smugness was met with an endless expanse where it could 
run itself uh well, and run itself he, tired. He, he seems humble. He, he, he seems humble too. His, his right? smugness. Exactly. He seems humbled he, by the fact that he's not having fun. I actually think there's yeah, another humble was the right word. They don't spell this out explicitly, but I think there's another important thing that happens in this movie that you could say happened at some point in Star Trek 2 and not Star Trek 2, but Star Trek as well. The original series theoretically before we met a lot of the crew members, which is this movie has a lot about like what it means to be a crew, right? Kirk has decided that this is a job. He talks about in the opening uh, captain's log about the crew performs admirably, but I also think they're somewhat unhappy at their jobs right now, right? He is a leader who is not inspiring his crew to like unify behind a specific vision of what they're out there to do because he hasn't really he's adrift himself and doesn't really know what they're out there to do at this point so it's also kind of i think the evolution by the end and that comes up a lot right like scotty and um and jayla specifically who's an alien that we're going to meet how a lot of conversations about what it means to be a crew. And there's parts where like Jayla asks, you know, Kirk, is this what it means to be a crew? And he's just kind of like, sure, whatever. Like he, he's kind of not, he hasn't lost the faith in like the Federation and, and Starfleet necessarily. He has lost a little in the faith of the concept of being a captain and that being anything more than a job that gets frustrating. And so I think you also see an evolution by the end of this when it's like almost an evolution to family and friends, the ending scene where they're all hanging out and celebrating and smiling and, you know, patting each other's backs as they look at, we're really going to go out there again. It's like he figured out how to actually become Captain Kirk. He was Kirk, Captain of the Enterprise. But he became like, I'm going to be a leader. I'm going to be someone who has a perspective and, you know, leads a crew towards like an ethos as opposed to just trying to find adventure to adventure. So I really like that that subtle piece of it, too, that is it's it's just clear that like, sure, they all were crew members in the first two movies, but they weren't friends. They weren't the family that we know. And I think that also ties into where Spock's going to end up when he's like, my place is here, not just because I like this job and I want to be the first officer of the Enterprise and everything else, but this is my family. And they as will we'll share, they call that back in something that could be incredibly eye-rolling and instead is incredibly affecting when they show a picture of the old crew of the Enterprise from Star Trek VI specifically. And he, he recognizes that this is this is more than just an assembly of people doing jobs. This is like my familial, my found family, and that's going to stay true based on what I know of the future from uh, another version of me for a long time. So I really like that as the theming in, in combination. And then the other theme we'll just get to really quickly because this will instead of coming up that the other ones miss out. This is about what it means to be the Federation of Planets and what Starfleet means, which was completely passed over for prime directive references that no one cared about in the last couple movies. This is a movie where ultimately we're going to find out the bad guys are a uh, hundred years old and they're humans. And they were in the first incarnation of Starfleet and one of the first ships that ever went out. And it was when Starfleet had migrate, had decommissioned the military on earth and they became explorers as opposed to military men. And while some of the military men, 
took the jobs of explorers and diplomats and, and representatives of the Federation, they ultimately became frustrated in a similar way that Kirk is becoming frustrated by the idea of continuing to push into the frontier and to explore stupid planets and and to feel like you're just out there in limbo. And instead of Kirk, who comes around to the idea of what his job means and his role means and what Starfleet means and what the Federation means, these guys become saying, we are people of war and we're going to show the specific line is like, Starfleet's been pushing into the frontier for 100 years. Today, the frontier fights back. Yeah, um, which when you I, when you hear that line, you actually think it's from an indigenous person, and it's not. It's he's a human co- person who was sent there as a diplomat and became a conqueror who was trying to to conquer Mac. He is he's um, uh, Colonel Kurtz. He's <laughs> Colonel Kurtz, or a little bit Aguirre the Wrath of God. <laughs> he is Aguirre the Wrath of God. Yeah, um, um, yeah. So, but I, I think it's I think it's I think it's good to pause here really quickly and like. Yeah, like, I don't, again, I don't think this movie is doing Last Jedi level work where it's, like, truly trying to undo um, or, uh, you know, uh, negotiate with the past. Um, Yeah. It's just trying to make a movie that represents the themes of Star Trek. Yeah, but I think that, in a way, we were talking about how the last movie, like, used fascism almost as like a table dressing or yeah. used like iconography from fascist characters but didn't actually contend with any of that and what it means for the federation um this is like a fascist figure crawl yeah. is a a aka balthasar edison um, play, i was going to say by, if this played by idris elba yeah, I was gonna say if we were doing a. Did you know it was episode, Idris Elba until they he gets revealed as a human? No, it was kind. It's of kind fun. of a fun reveal, right? It's kind of a fun reveal because he moves his jaw and he has like. There's moments when the voice comes through and you're like, I know, but it's just kind of all. It sounds like the Michael Dorn. It sounds like he's doing a half Klingon voice. I actually. Almost, I forgot he was human. I thought he was a Klingon that was in dis- like not in disguise, yeah. but his mind. Because I and he kind of looks like he kind of looks like the new version of Klingons, which were in yeah. five minutes of Into Darkness. Yeah. But um, so the the I, what I was going to say is, if we were doing a We Love to Watch episode, uh, I was going to say um, if you're going to hold anything against this movie, hold that it spent almost two hours. Hiding Idris Elba's beautiful face from us, <laughs> like well, can way, you imagine putting still Idris... an old man not doing great? <laughs> but it, it, like, can you imagine? Yeah, exactly. Can you imagine casting Idris Elba in a movie and being like, cover that face? That, we're putting that fucking ugly <laughs> goon under makeup. Yeah. Like one of the most handsome men on the planet, charming voice. Instead, you're like. He's 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 going under the latex. I don't want to look at him. Yeah, we can have a whole. We could have a whole. We're not going to get into here, but we could have a whole discussion about like how Idris Elba is an amazing actor who has yet to find his movie. That's like a great Idris Elba movie. Like he obviously has The Wire, but like I feel like he's in a million. He, like, on TV, he's really sung. Yeah, like right, like people love and, Luther. And, the Wire. He's amazing in The Wire. He's great for his stretch on The Office, even. Yeah. Like, he plays a really interesting, like, foil. Like, yeah. someone... Yeah. A, a competent house cleaner, yeah. basically, to come into Dunder Mifflin, just completely throws off the vibe of the yeah. show for a little bit. Yeah. This is probably one of the best characters he plays, but you're right. They just put him under heavy alien makeup, and only at the end you're like, oh, it's Idris Elba. Um, yeah. It's, and fun, and it's I'm, a fun, I'm, it's I'm a fun twist, though. Yeah. 
I'm joking, obviously. Like, it's cool to have Idris Elba get to play this kind of character. Um, but it is very funny to cast an extremely handsome person and then hide all that stuff in there. It works um, as a fun twist because you're just like, oh, he's an alien person. And when it's like, oh, no, that's just Idris Elba in a Starfleet uniform. Oh, that, like it, it, it's it almost yeah. It definitely surprised me the first time I I I, I saw. It. But anyway, um, that absolutely surprised me on this watch. My only watch so far. Yeah. So getting into it, so they go out to the stress signal, and there's uh, normally in space battles, it's a big ship versus a little another big ship, or a big ship versus a couple little ships. They do something that really hasn't been done. I guess there's actually a couple of Voyager episodes that do this, so I shouldn't say never been done, but. What if it's a bunch of little tiny ships? And these tiny ships, we'll say, they destroy the Enterprise in this movie. The ending of it is they're building the Enterprise A, which happens a little bit sooner in this timeline than the one where Kirk's dad was fine. Um, because the ship gets destroyed here. We've seen the Enterprise get destroyed. We saw the Enterprise get destroyed in Star Trek Three, where it explodes and blows up. We saw the Enterprise get destroyed in Star Trek Generations, where it splits into a saucer. One blows up, the other one crashes onto a planet. Oh, great crash. Great crash. Great crash. But they were like, look, we've seen the Enterprise get destroyed before. Let's really fuck it up in this one. Let's <laughs> take it apart piece by piece, piece by and make piece. you understand the anatomy of it. Yeah. So these, these ships just start, you know, they go through the shields. They are basically like these little, like almost like worker bee drones. They have sharp points, which I don't, I'm sure there's some sort of laser or phaser weapon on the outside of that. But they just devastate this Enterprise in this like – and like you're 20 minutes into the movie and all of a sudden the warp nacelles have been cut off the fucking ship. And then all of a sudden there's an alien who goes, cut its throat. And it just cuts off the middle part. People are flying into space. It's it's kind of incredible that they, you know, the the, the blowing up of the Enterprise, the original Enterprise in Star Trek 3 or the Enterprise D in, in, in Generations, that's the climax or close to the climax of the movie. They're just like, we're going to fucking destroy it. You've only seen this Enterprise for two movies and we are going to fuck it up beyond recognition. Like they're like, this Enterprise is not coming back. Even when a crash lands on the on the planet, it like rolls and explodes the saucer. There's like no pieces, which gives stakes to the movie of like, how are they getting off this planet because it's not they're not gonna repair the enterprise that is not and it's part happen. of the it's part of the final reveal is like how they're gonna get off yeah. the, the planet yeah. Which um, great and scene. i will say i will say something so i have questioned thus far what the value is in cgi yeah in star trek when the practical effects look so good and the cgi battles thus far have been kind of lackluster yeah um in this movie, uh, the space battles look so good. They finally have justified why they're doing that. Yep. And one of the things that they did in this that they really couldn't have done in the previous movies, just purely on a budget level, maybe yep. they could have done in the motion picture, um, is the, all of the the bees yeah, form. Yeah, the swarm, yeah. They form a strange geometric pattern that keeps shifting and the ship can't lock yeah. onto it before they realize that it's just a million ships working in a, in a specific yeah. pattern. Yeah. And that's great the sort sequence. of thing. It's great sequence. It's actually genuinely like um, tense because you're like, what the fuck is this thing? This doesn't look like a Klingon ship. This doesn't look like a whatever. Yeah. And um, that's the sort of thing that like CGI is for is he's like, tessellated patterns that can move and shift in these in these mathematical movements in ways that you're like the fact that it's so precise indicates something about the automated intelligence 
the the AI, so to speak, the uh, of the um, of the the people flying that, because you later find out <laughs> that all of the pilots of these ships are a essentially a drone army yeah. from that the plant the the private previous uh uh residents of the planet Used just like mining. left behind Used for mining. mining yeah yeah all these drones yeah so this these are not the indigenous we don't know who were the indigenous but these drones were found by what you'll find out is like the uss farragut or an early star starfleet crew but um so they like they one of the things it does and that makes it really interesting the other movies are so focused on Kirk and Spock specifically. Every character gets a little bit of short shrift. Sure, they all have like one or two little hero moments. Like in the first movie, Sulu gets to fight with a sword or Chekhov gets to save the day. And, you know, they're, it's minor. They are all background. This one takes a completely different approach that pairs up as they crash to the ship and they're getting attacked. Pairs up the characters and they're separated for a lot of the movies in different ways. This movie also critically, I complained about this in the last couple of movies, remembered what the entire triumvirate dynamic of Star Trek was. The first two movies are about Kirk and Spock bickering. The whole thing that everyone, as I read those oral histories of Star Trek, they're like, the genius was this. You have Kirk who's at the top of the, the triumvirate and the pyramid, who represents both logic and passion and emotion. And then you have two foils who both have great relationships with Kirk that are one side of that coin. Emotion and passion and logic and reason. And so the whole like dynamic, both whether it's a comedic purposes or dramatic pur- purposes of the original crew of Star Trek – is it's McCoy and Spock that bicker like a married couple to try to give their perspective to Kirk. And the first two movies put McCoy as just a guy on the sideline who says great lines and is fantastically played by Carl Urban, but makes that Spock and Kirk hate each other. This movie remembers how the dynamic works. And so Kirk gets along with McCoy and he gets along with Spock. And those two are bickering constantly. And so as part of the pair-ups, as they crash to this planet, some get captured by the guy, um, uh, uh, Balthazar Krall, um, who is is capturing the crew and trying to get the what we find out is the artifact from the beginning of the movie, which is a very important weapon for his plans. Um, they pair Spock and McCoy up together, and you get an hour whenever they cut back to them of them bickering like a married couple. It's like Simon Pegg is like, oh, this is the dynamic. And it's one thing to say like, oh, like to miss references or stuff like that. But when you're remaking um, Star Trek and you completely whiff for two movies on the central relationship of those three characters, you are missing something that everyone talks about is the essence of Star Trek. It's yeah. science versus emotion, empathy versus reason, and it's represented perfectly by these this wonderful triangle of characters, and it was totally missed in the first two movies. And this movie not only gets it right, it makes – it like almost makes up for lost time by having Spock and McCoy spend so much time together. And they – that is that is uh, such a good point. And in addition, um, in the first movie, they came up with some like wacky – wacky reasons for um doc to do sorry doc to do medicine yeah um 
And in the second movie, essentially, he just was kind of hanging out and would sometimes drop. He's like, if I inject the the blood from here. Yes. I'm Jesus At the end Christ. of the movie, shows up to do triple shit, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I can heal anybody with this yeah. triple. Yeah. Um, by the way, that is similar to Harry Potter dispensing with um, uh, the time machine. Um, very telling that after uh, Into Darkness, they were like, actually, we got rid of the uh, space racists' uh, yeah, this, triple blood. This movie never mentions in anything that happens in Into Darkness. Not even a character. To- don't you think that yeah. maybe space racist blood transfusions would be helpful? I don't know. I mean, but, if, um, if we found out that KKK members could bring people back from the dead, we should lock them up, but we should definitely take their blood as well. <laughs> uh, well, and then and this one, McCoy, though, the whole thing is Spock gets injured on the crash and McCoy has to take care of him, which is a yeah. great, great joke. The other thing that's really funny, so Uhura and Sulu, they pair up. I mean, they don't pair up. They get captured by uh, Crawl. The a very funny runner with McCoy and Spock is that the necklace that we talked about has a radiation frequency um, that uh, they ultimately use when they're like, we can't use our comms. They're blocking it. And that's how they finally found out where Ohura and Sulu and the rest of the crew is held captive because they're able to track the radiation uh, from the thing. And McCoy's like. So you gave your girlfriend a tracking device? <laughs> and he goes, I had not intended it like that. And at the end of the movie, there's this great little scene where um, where they uh, Spock and Uhura make up. And they give a kiss and, and McCoy is in the background drinking a drink and looking at him. And she sports the necklace and shows it to him. And <laughs> McCoy looks at Spock and is like, I see she still has the necklace and then gives like the best like Carl Urban like okay buddy yeah <laughs> like, it's, well, it's that, so now he it's now so he great. knows it's a tracking <laughs> device right it's one of those yeah. things where like if someone remembers like oh I can track them by this yeah. not that creepy yeah. but once he knows it's a tracking device he's like hmm. just the way that Spock understands that McCoy is right and is doesn't know how to argue against it. It's it's so good. Like this movie is just full of great moments like that, but it's it's so good. Uh so Scotty um ends up uh with meeting kind of our new character who's so great. Um I I really love this character and uh, her name's Jayla. She's played by uh oof, Sophie Batella, I think. Sure. You did um, great. Uh, and uh, they originally wanted Jennifer Lawrence. The The role was developed for Jennifer Lawrence. Um, kind of weird. Jennifer Lawrence has not had a, a great career these past six years. Like, yeah. she, like what she could have, uh, she could have hopped in here. But it she's been just fine. She, at this point, we don't know that Crawl is not an indigenous person on this planet. Um, Jayla is, and he, we found out find out that her dad was killed by Crawl. And she is kind of scavenging and trying to keep safe from these patrols. And what she's discovered, we find out, is this crash of the USS Farragut, which um, the captain, Balthasar Edison, and the crew was one of the first ships sent out into deep space. It could only go warp four. And it, they found they couldn't believe they, they found this. This is where the ship ended up. It was a great mystery. Balthasar was – Edison was considered a hero. They talk, taught at Starfleet Academy and it's here. The ship is also from 100 plus years in the past, and one of the things that Jayla has found is that it has um, a library of beats, uh, screaming over beats, which is uh, great, and she 
she shows that off by playing pun- public enemies fight the power as her and she's an engineer. She's a self-taught engineer, and so her and Scotty have this great like we're fixing stuff up, we're trying to find people working together. I love this character so many times. At- she's great. She's great, and it's not a cargo cult thing where she just like worships the fancy device. She's no. like, no, I know how the wires how work works, better yeah. than you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, it's so great, too, because so many of these Star Trek movies, they introduce that other character into the crew, and it, it it's like, why do we have this other character in this crew? Sometimes it works. Um, like in Star Trek Four, I think it works really well, and I think – but then you have like Star Trek Nine, where they keep trying to introduce like, now these people are in the crew, and it's like, who cares about these people? And so – this she's so good and she does end up joining Starfleet at the end. She has this great arc about finding a family, finding what it means to be a crew, which helps Kirk, as I said, kind of learn relearn why he's out there. It's it's so great. Kirk is with Chekhov, which is a great pairing. There's a really funny moment where he notes that um Kalara was a traitor the whole time and leading them into this trap and working with Crawl. Chekhov when they, he's like, How did you know she was working for him? And he's like <laughs> eh, I just have a nose for danger and immediately steps on a trap where gas leaks out. Um, and he's like, run! It's such a, I mean, it's that kind of great, like, perfect time comedy of like, he's finally getting his cocky Kirk energy back only to immediately step on a trap that freezes them in place and ends up, it's actually one of uh, Jayla's traps and hooks them back up with, with them. So, we're not going to spend a lot of time. There's a lot of machinations and a lot of great moments on this. But ultimately, what ends up happening to kind of get through to the third act, because we still got to rank Star Trek movies, and this is going long. Um, they uh, they end up – we find out that that weapon is basically almost like a mini version of the, the mining drones that they're using, where it actually, instead of tearing apart ships, can tear apart people. And his revenge – you find out that he crawls Balthazar Eddy, who used this technology on this planet to stretch, you know, basically take life force from all these people like Jayla's father that he was kidnapping, stay alive forever. It warped his face if he doesn't get, uh, he needs to keep getting treatments. That part's a little Star Trek 90, um, but, uh, you know, he has to keep getting these treatments and basically taking people's life energy. But he's going to go to that star base. We saw at the beginning and wipe out to kind of show that fuck you to to the Federation and the crew that he has left, which is only three of them. It was Kalara and this guy named Manus are planning to do that. Meanwhile, they're like, we, we the only way to get off of this is to get the Farragut up and running. So uh, so uh, J- Jayla and Scotty are working on that. They also find the it's kind of fun. They use this hundred year old Star Trek technology. Like we can beam you out, but we need you to hold this button so we can trace you. So they're trying to get all the crew back now that they've trapped them with Uhura's necklaces. There's that great scene that we talked about where because there's a motorcycle on the Farragut where Kirk uses both Jayla's traps and and her and Jayla basically go through and give everyone Beamer things and take them out one by one and. Uh, it's it's a really great it, again this is like the scene that if you're like oh why did they get the Fast and the Furious guy to direct this movie you're like oh it's this scene it's 100% this scene right here because it's, it's so good I complained a lot about the action sequences in the last two but like I know where people are I generally understand what this battlefield looks like and when I don't it's because the, the swirling sense of chaos is actually like compelling Purpose. like 
you're confused because the soldiers also don't know which Kirk is the real Kirk. Like, yeah, you're... Your your eyes are tracking the same way that these like drone guys' eyes are tracking, which is like Kirk, 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 Kirk. Kirk. Yeah. Like you can't, you like. There's a few moments like that, but also like you have stability moments, like yeah. them sneaking behind enemies. You have like it's just it's it's just a, a well made little shootout escape sequence in a movie or sorry in a series that thus far has not been good at any of this shit. No. Um. And yeah, I love, I love, uh, I absolutely love how the scene resolves with, like, the Manus guys, like, they're gonna leave you behind, like, <laughs> yeah, like, I, you this are your no crew. value. Yeah, you're, you're waste, yeah. Yeah, and then Kirk is like, actually extends out his time before he teleports back so that he can grab yeah, her. great sequence. Also, I've been calling it the Farragut, which is a ship in Star Trek, I don't remember where. It's the Franklin? It's the Franklin, yep. USS Franklin. USS Franklin. Um, yeah, but he's just like the. But yeah, uh, Balthazar Edison is like a a, a war loving dinosaur yeah. that like has never given up his like imperialist ambitions. They've just shifted in weird ways over the years. Yeah, it's kind of like you shouldn't promote your. We shouldn't elect generals into political positions because yeah. like uh, they're probably going to vote for all the war shit. Uh, yeah. So anyway. Um, so this this begins like this fantastic third act action sequence that goes on and on and on and is fantastic throughout. So they get the Franklin started, they get all the crew on it, and they basically are like, "We're gonna go chase after them. We know they're going to the starbase." Uh, Thrall's ships just eat up all the defenses of the starbase and and get them in pretty quickly. And they're like, "What are we supposed to do? This is a ship a hundred years old, and they are getting they are wrecking all the shit." And that's when Spock um, figures out essentially that, well, these drones are moving an incredible, uh, incredible uh, uh, synchronicity. And the only way they could be doing that was some sort of sound. So they go and they beam aboard one of the drones and they investigate and they find, yep, here's what's happening. We need basically loud noise to disrupt the, the drones and they won't be able to communicate and they'll overload and they'll explode. And so that's when, of course, uh, Jayla's like, oh, we can use the, the, the loud screaming over beats. Um, and so they get it hooked up. They pick a song. And this just I, – again, I told you I kind of liked the use of Beastie Boy Sabotage in the first movie. It is only for this moment that they have totally redeemed it because what starts blasting over the, the speakers is Sabotage. And Kirk gets a huge smile on his uh, face and goes, this is a good choice. Um, and then it's just this incredible, like, to one of the best action songs of all time of this ship flying through the drone swarm, the drones exploding, cutting back to, like, you know, McCoy and, and Spock doing things in there. It's a, it's just an amazing sequence and also has a great little joke that everyone always wonders, like, how would how would stuff like Beastie Boys be considered a couple, year, a couple hundred years in the future? There's a point where um, Spock goes, oh. Is this classical music? And McCoy's like, yeah, I think it is, which is an obvious joke, but it's so funny and perfect because, yeah, if you're listening to 200-year-old music, now 300-year-old music, what else would you call it at that point? Yeah, yeah. And I I don't 
I did not like that sequence in the original movie, yeah. especially because I just don't like uh, shithead, dirtbag, uh, young Kirk. Well, it, it, there has um, no purpose except to show this ain't your daddy's Star Trek. We're playing Beastie Boys, baby. But yeah. this one, this but one here, it's like it's like they actually put in the legwork to justify it and making it a callback. Honestly, worked for me. I I know that like an easy accusation here is that this is like almost like the movie trying to riff on like. What if we made a Guardians of the Galaxy in track yeah. kind of thing? I absolutely understand that criticism. However, did you watch the last two movies? Having an action sequence that's reminiscent of movies with good action sequences is just fine. It's it, fine. It also like it the the callback of otherwise it's just oh cool you have Beastie Boys, but the fact that like Kirk gets to have that moment, it's like the first time he smiled in most of the movie, right? Like yeah. he gets a big smile on his face and he's like, This is a good choice. It's like it's an incredibly cringeworthy initial use that justifies his existence for a wonderful little moment. Uh, in a movie three minutes or three, you know, three movies later. Yeah. And uh, I think, and, and again, I think the ship stuff works. I think some of the face stuff doesn't work. Like when Crawl's face is shifting. I don't think those, uh, those aliens at the beginning of the movie look particularly good. They look a little antiquated for 2016, yeah. let's say. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but Man, the sequence hits. Yeah. It hits. Well, and then it keeps going because Balthazar is trying to get to the vent, to the air, to put the weapon, to kill everyone. There's chases through the street that was like boring and looked like shit in um, in Star Trek Into Darkness. Here it looks amazing with him crashing this works. into water. It, the whole thing works. Of course, they kill him. And of course, he gets eaten by his own weapon and Kirk saves the day. Uh, and then, you know, they have kind of a party to – to uh, to basically get you know the the commodore's like well you just saved billions of lives the vice admiralty is is yours meanwhile Spock gets a package from Spock that's just that picture of them all as family and they're like hey not only is is Jayla gonna go to Starfleet Academy we all love each other we you know we we hit that point where we're the crew of the Enterprise as you know them. Not these weird bickering people that were thrown together because of, you know, some sort of pull of the alternate universe that had to happen. And they look out at the Star, you know, Enterprise A being built, and McCoy's like, "I can't believe we're actually going to go back out there." And you know, Kirk with a big, I, I, yeah, yeah, Kirk, Kirk with a big smile on his face goes, "You bet we are." Pats him on the back because they all look smiling. It's like this just perfectly earned moment the whole last 10 minutes where they're just all getting a little bit of time with the, all the other movies just end in it's like fucking we're we're going to space guys and this one like let's sit and like spend a little time with these characters all together again because that's the whole point you're supposed to like these people and they're supposed to you're supposed to like seeing them interact with each other and uh, it's a, it's so a, like the slow moments as much as the 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 yeah. you know action sequences. Yeah, great low key ending. This movie. Oh, I love the, I love the building shot of the Enterprise. It's yeah. it's the sort of thing that if you told me on paper, like I absolutely would be like, this sucks. Yeah. Um, well, now like, they're why, building why? the A again, and they all hug and look at it. Fuck you. You're undoing the stakes of the movie. They just get another ship, but instead, it's like what it what it really does is it, because the movie did the groundwork thematically what it's really doing is it's not a complex theme but the theme is 
there was a period of time at the beginning of the movie where the ship was the only thing keeping them together. The ship was a way to serve. It was a job to do. It's a thing you're, it was something you could, you could strive for. It was a means of rebellion for a lot of these people like Kirk and Spock. Um, and then after being on the ship for a few years, um, it became the only thing that was holding them together. And then they lose the ship, reconnect with each other as a crew and then they get a new ship to a ship again because they worked together as a crew, right? Like yeah. it's 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 a simple basic theme, but it's basically people learning that the ship is not important, it's the people on the ship that's important, right? Yeah. It's it's not complex, but like this is a movie that features like a motorcycle getting uh total recall cloned a <laughs> yeah. uh, hundred times yeah. um, with holograms. So like it, it's not you know. complex, but it feels like, oh, at least you understand what Star Trek is. Which is Yeah, important. yeah, you're hitting one of the basic themes yeah. of the show. The congratulations. I mean, Star- as much as people say there's a big Star Trek philosophy, it's actually not that complex. Like yeah. people have added a lot to it, but just to go and say this is what Star Trek is is important while still making a wonderful movie. It's great, Peter. We're almost out of time. We have now watched all 13 Star Trek movies. It we would be doing everyone a disservice if we didn't rank them. And I've rewatched them all, some of them from from a lot i don't remember the last time i saw star trek 5 before all this so um wasn't one i was continuing going to the well and watching so we have our rankings we're going to go 13 to 1 peter of the 13 star trek movies what is number 13 for you nemesis Hey, that's my number 13 as well what a shitty movie somehow we probably were i don't think I don't know if we, we said we were really talk shit about Into Darkness. I don't remember our Nemesis episode. I can't imagine we that was that that could be one in the bucket of just talking shit for a long time. Because yeah, that terrible. It's uh, it no words you mean. Um, a more a more a more mortal sin than Star Trek Into Darkness, and in that it's boring. Number twelve, Star Trek, Star Trek Into, Into Darkness. Darkness. Yeah. Yeah, I figured that's where we'd be at at the bottom. Um, uh, number yeah, we 11? Yeah, last week. Um, Insurrection. Hey! Mine is Insurrection as well. Also not a good movie. Um, number 10. Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. We have Divergence. I actually put 2009 on there. I don't okay. hate... I, I think my, my hate cutoff is probably there. Like, that's where it gets positive. Me too. But, Me too. But I, like, I would rather watch almost any of the other movies. Like, if I'm just doing, like, what would I, what could I watch at any time? It's not, I'm not trying to rank the objectively best, but that movie is okay. And the more I've thought about it, even since we've recorded, the more I've been a little bit disappointed by it. And I'd have more fun watching William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy in a movie um, than I would watch that again um twice in 15 years still felt a little too soon to me um yeah, yeah but uh Number nine star trek 2009 star trek five <laughs> that's okay. that's where i ultimately decide like star trek five is obviously the worst of those movies but i'd rather watch uh cybok and shatner yell at god than i would uh, you know, that's that stuff. Uh, yeah, you're probably if I rewatch them, you'd probably be right. Number eight. Uh, first contact. My God. 
That Star Trek First Contact is my number eight as well, Peter. This is in the range of movies that I genuinely like genuinely and would love. like to revisit in the next few years. Yeah. Like, you know, we're in the we're in the range where like this is a movie that I would like to watch as a movie. There is more oh I'm in the good area. There's more good Star Trek movies than bad, ultimately. So even though it's number eight, it's number eight because I like seven more. <laughs> But not because I dis I, I don't dislike First Contact at all. Where, um, you know, Star Trek is doing better than most horror franchises that I watch. And all Fast the and the Furious. Though, so. There's four good of those out of ten movies if you include the spinoff. Or eleven movies yeah. if you include the spinoff. Halloween, Friday the thirteenth, yeah. most of those series, there's like three or four good ones and then a bunch of bullshit. Um, number seven. Oh sorry, I'm squinting now. Uh Star Trek three, the search for Spock. God, Peter, I don't know how to tell you this. My number seven is Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock as well. I think we're going to have a little more divergence, even though I guess we have all six of the same movies ranked in the top six. Um, yeah. Number we'll number six for you. Uh, Generations. So mine is the motion picture. And it's not because we're, we're now in great. Everything. My top six are great movies I can watch anytime. I'm picking the motion picture because as I think about rewatchability, the rest of these are different levels of fun and exciting for me. Motion pictures, especially the new director's cut, it's two hours and 40 minutes. It is a like it's more of an experience with a lot of good parts. It is an amazing movie. It's a five star movie from my perspective. If I was to say it, it probably is like even now as I bought all the 4K remasters, I've rewatched two, three, four, and five, and I'm gonna get to six, and I'm like, well, at some point when I really have time to focus, I'm gonna watch the motion picture. So that's the, the motion picture six, is um, motion picture is closer to uh, 2001 than it is to yeah. a lot of these movies. <laughs> so it's great. I love it based on my like rewatchability periods. Number five, uh, Star Trek. Four, the voyage home. We're we're now in this the range of love for me. I think I think the top yeah. five is is truly like a top five. Like I, I love yeah. I love all these movies. I, I would say that was six because my number five is Generations, which I do acknowledge being a lesser movie than these other ones. But also, I have such like I remember when I rewatched it, expecting it to fall, and I just love this movie so much. It was like. It was the first Star Trek movie that I was, like, excited to see in theaters. It was one of the first movies I ever owned on VHS. I just would watch it religiously. It's a lot of nostalgia love, but even revisiting it like we did for the show, I'm like, God, I fucking love this movie. So, um, yeah. Uh, number four. Number four. Uh, Star Trek Beyond. You've already heard everything I have to say about hey, that. Hey, guess movie. what? Star Trek Beyond is my number four as well. Isn't it fucking wild, though, that after Into Darkness, they made one of the best tricks? I could watch Isn't it, it right fucking now. fucking wild? Uh, ta- you know, it's funny. After Into Darkness, I just was getting more and more angry in Star Trek. When we talked about 2009, I was getting more and more about like, oh, maybe I don't like this movie as much as even my star rating indicates. Talking about this, like, I wish it wasn't already past midnight in my time. Maybe I'd go watch Star Trek Beyond. I feel like I feel like Beyond might Beyond or like I th- Beyond is definitely like maybe the most watchable Star Trek. Like I could just like throw it on at any point. Yeah. Um, number three, 
the motion picture. I've not seen the director's cut yet, but the motion picture, the theatrical cut. Uh, we can do a special epi on the director's special cut. At this point, it's, it's been that five, much longer. It's been five years since you've watched it at this point. And, um, and it's been that much longer, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, that, it's that much longer, right? It is. Yeah. Um, mine is Star Trek VI. Uh, first Star Trek I saw in theaters. Movie I absolutely love is my number three. What is your number two, Peter? Uh, Star Trek Six. It's a movie that is very much improved in my memory over time in a way that, like, uh, always says to me something special, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's an absolute great movie. Nicholas Meyer coming back. and fin- It's a great send-off to the cast. I, I love it so much. Uh, my number two is Star Trek Two. I really struggled ranking one and two. I love Star Trek Two, but... I, the one I just get so much joy from watching is the one that I'll talk about next. Peter, what's your number one? Star Trek it's, two. It's two. Wrath of Khan. I think it. I think. I think you have to rank it number one for me. You have to rank it number one because it balances what's great about Trek um, with. It's a fucking movie. Yeah. It, it, it knows what's where you're going to get bored and it cuts that bullshit out. Yeah. It knows when you need to like really crank up the tension. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a movie made by an actual filmmaker that made himself curious about the subject material, which you cannot say about the two J.J. Abrams movies and a few of the, the Next Generation series. <laughs> yeah. Um, Star Trek 2 is the best Star Trek movie. I would never debate it. My favorite is Star Trek 4. I just... You know, it's such a, like, fun... It's just a good time to spend with the characters. It doesn't have a bad guy. It is, like... I don't know. Like, uh, it is... I watched it a lot as a kid, too. It was the one that, like, you know, that... It's like, oh, like, double dumbass on you. Like, when I didn't understand some of the themings and the, you know, and, and included with the adventure stuff... It just was a blast. And so if I had to pick, like, if you had to destroy all my Blu-rays except one, this is the one I could see myself watching the most over the next 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and so, yeah. I mean, again, Star Trek 2 is probably the best. I love all of these in the top six. But I'm going to go Star Trek 4. Favorite Star Trek movie. Reputable, reputable pick. Um, it is absolutely number one with a bullet. The Star Trek movie that should be worse. <laughs> Yeah. And is actually really fucking good. Yeah. Uh, the Star Trek movie where they saved the whales. Nicholas like, Meyer did write it with Leonard Nimoy, noted director of Three Men and a Baby. Um, but, uh, yeah, the proto-full house, as some would call it. Um, <laughs> Peter, that's, that's it. We're out of Star Trek movies. Star Trek will not end. We, candidly, transparently with our audience... We will likely have a bonus episode next week uh, that is in the theme of Star Trek. But we're also going to be taking a little break for a couple months. We're trying to get all of our Halloween stuff done before that break. So if we end up not having it and go right into some spooky stuff, we'll save what we were planning to do for next week for another time. So you're either going to get a a Spooktober kickoff list or you're going to get our little surprise Star Trek rapper. Um, Who can say which one? Tune in next week on either Star Trek or We Love to Watch.
so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches. Peter and Aaron. <laughs>